0: Hello and welcome to England Unmask, the podcast dedicated exclusively to England that we hope helped you through the Euros, which the three Lions were hoping they'd win on July the 11th last night, but didn't. I'm Dom Smith. And I'm Luke Edwards. Before we start this podcast, we'd like to strongly condemn the racist abuse for England's players, notably Jaden Sancho, Marcus Rashford and Bakayo Saka, whose missed penalties caused England not to win the European Championships last night. Racist abuse goes further than sport, which is, at the end of the day, entertainment, and these are young people who absolutely should not be subject to violent and disgusting abuse like that. Before we get into the the ins and outs of the match against Italy, I spoke with John Stones earlier in the week, where he talked about how excited he was to play in the European Championships final, and how the togetherness and team spirit in the camp has helped get through the tournament, not being able to see friends and families by being in a COVID bubble. Here's John Stones. First of all, when you made your debut seven years ago against Peru, I mean, surely you didn't think that this came as part of the job, England in a major tournament final. Uh, What are you most looking forward to about it?
1: I think it's... um... The unknown territory that, that that's never been done before. Um, being part of that is something special and something I'm proud of. And you know, we've um, come so far as a team, made so many um, big steps, made a lot of history and and, and Sunday's another chance for us to do that. And um, you know that's something that motivates me, excites me and and really pushes me on. So yeah it's um, it's about being as prepared as we can be and, and personally as, as prepared as I can be and, and, and give everything for, for for my teammates, for the shirt, for the nation and, and um yeah, getting it over the line at the end of the day.
0: Well, hopefully you can. And uh, just on the team spirit, um, you know, does the team spirit and the closeness between you all in this camp help, um, especially this year with not being able to see your family and, and being in the bubble because of COVID? Has, has that helped, do you think?
1: I think it, it depends how you look at it. Um, I think we've all been so focused on on what's happened, um, not being able to see our families is, has been difficult for everyone, and, and not spending time with them, or, or you know, getting that one or one or two days which we've we've had previously in, in in other tournaments. But that's something that we've had to adapt to, and and we've all done that really well, and. We're all here for for one reason, and, and and that's to try and you know win the Euros on Sunday, and and we've we've given ourselves that opportunity. So all the dedication, all the things that we've sacrificed to to get us where we are right now, of uh, you know you could say is everything's kind of come together at the right time. That was
2: John Stones and Dom. Ultimately, England dreaded penalty kicked again, was it? I was blasted penalty kicked. Uh, ultimately meant Italy went away. I mean, let's be honest, I said it, I think I said it in the last pod, Italy are the best side I've seen in the tournament so far. Mm. Um, And England were probably the second best in the tournament. So it was probably the right result in the end. Um, My overall feelings are, yes, it's disappointing, but at the start of the tournament, I think we said, well, if we reach the quarterfinals, we're doing well. So to reach the final is not to be sniffed at. And you know, ultimately it's disappointing, but I still think, Everyone can hold their
0: heads held really high after it. Absolutely. I think um, England last night had uh, had the lowest possession that they've had since Southgate's fourth match in charge, November 2016, when uh, Spain stole a late 2-2 draw at Wembley. Well, that was uh, similarly uh, emphatic for uh, in terms of how the ball was kept by Italy. And I think you're right. I think Italy have been the best team in this tournament. England have been the second best. So perhaps justice was done, but what a cruel way to go out of the tournament.
2: Yeah. And ultimately, I mean, everyone said about all the settled defensively, but set felt exactly the same way as they've done in other games, but their strength in this tournament was the weakness, wasn't it? On Sunday in terms of keeping the ball when you have, they haven't had possession, they defended well, but then when they have won the ball back, they've used the ball really well on most occasions in the tournament. However, last night, it just felt like it was a, a game too far, maybe with the emotion and everything and scoring early. They did look, it looked a bit like Denmark did the other night. They looked drained after 60 minutes mentally, mentally more than physically, I think. And the decision-making just wasn't there. And people can say, oh, well, it's a double English trait. They can't keep the ball. But you look at how much they've improved over... I think Ollie Holt mentioned it, or one of the correspondents we've spoken to over the last couple of weeks mentioned it because, considering we used to moan in tournaments about England not keeping the ball, they have kept the ball really, really well. And last night, they just, yeah, ultimately, as I say, they just came up short. And it's one of those things you just go again and learn from it.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think England going to a 3 4 3, which they've only played once in this tournament against Germany, allowed. allowed defensive uh, solidity in the first half and allowed really, really clever and, and uh, cohesive pre- uh, pressing in the first half. I, um, I thought that Sterling and Mount were exceptional in the first half at cutting off the passing lanes and Italy were able to do absolutely nothing. Apart from Chiesa's run, run forward and shot when he beat Mount. Oh, sorry, when he beat Rice in midfield and just dragged it wide. I didn't think they created anything. So, and what a start! Luke Shaw with an absolutely beautiful goal, which he started, and he's been one of England's players of the tournament. I, I know that Donnarumma won play, the official UEFA Player of the Tournament for. Uh, but I, I would say that apart from you know lots of saves in two penalty shootouts, which is impressive. I don't, I don't think he's done a great deal in this tournament. Whereas. I would say, um, and this might be biased, that I don't think it is. I think Raheem Sterling or Luke Shaw perhaps deserved it more. But yeah, Shaw, either way, got his first England goal and what a game to get it in and what a start it was for England.
2: Yeah, that was, uh, that was Luke Shaw's only his fourth career goal. Um, so, and he was also, he scored the fastest goal ever in a European tournament final and also became the first Manchester United player to score in a European tournament final as well. So a couple of stats there for you. But yeah, he played really well. But again, like everyone else, he just he just drifted off. And even in extra time, Raheem Sterling, I think that's the first time he's really looked off the boil and off the base. Again, I think it just all caught up with him a little bit.
0: Well, I just don't I don't I don't know about that. I just don't think he could get into the game. I don't think he and Mount and Kane were able to grab hold of the ball. I, I thought that the 3-4-3 three, three worked superbly in the first half, but in the second half, particularly um in the first sort of 30 minutes before England conceded I thought that or, or 35 minutes I thought that actually the 3-4-3 showed its weaknesses there it, England weren't able to nick the ball and keep it because they had one fewer midfielder than Italy and um you know th- they were getting a nick in here or, or, or a foot in there every sort of two minutes but they weren't they weren't keeping it and, and when they did tackle that they just couldn't get it back so I think England have, cons- have lost the tournament to uh, final to the best team in this tournament. Um, and you can learn from this because yeah, you can learn from watching how good Italy were because Italy pound for pound are much worse than England. England's quality is, is almost unrivaled in on this continent. France perhaps can, can, can take them close, but ultimately you, you, you've got to be a good cohesive unit. And I think England in this tournament generally have, have been good. at. Uh, um, Sort of nullifying the the threats of other teams and and building from what they've got. I think uh, Southgate and Holland have tactically got it pretty pretty spot on in this tournament. Perhaps last night we, you know, it's easy to say in hindsight maybe three four three for the first half and four four two three one for the second. But yeah, by the time it was changed to four two three one and and, and Trippier made way for who was it? Uh, Rashford, Rashford, yeah, yeah. But by the time that had happened. I think the, the ascendancy was already with Italy. The pendulum had already swung and uh, and perhaps the game was only going one way, although England did well to take it to a penalty shootout. And and, and Pickford made two saves and, and it could have been different. But
3: yeah. In- I mean there's
0: there's no disgraces, I mean you've got to remember Italy were unbeaten in what is it thirty over
2: thirty games now? I mean you don't you don't do that without being a good side and 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 having um, a will to win. And we have got that experience at the back and you like to see Stones and Maguire, they will be, again, more tournament experience going into Qatar in, in 16 months' time. So for the final time, we're going to do our winners and losers section. Cue the bugle. So in terms of winners then, I mean, first of all, the team. I'm going to go for the team. They were winners. Um, individually, we'll look at winners and losers in a minute, but yeah, I mean, what the team have done, how they've got the public behind them has been absolutely incredible. Uh, individually, the winner, massive winner for me, again, Jordan Pickford, I mean, a couple of really good saves, he was really unfortunate on the goal, he made a brilliant save, pushed it onto the post, and it just kind of rolled behind him straight to Benucci, if it had just hit the post and gone into his arms, England may well have one, one, um, one nil in the end and then two really good saves in the penalty shootout out as well uh, and I think any sort of doubt over him about being England's number one have been put to bed in this tournament
0: yeah quite right um I think England's back four frankly deserve deserve to be winners I think Walker, Shaw, Maguire, Stones every single one of them had a good game and needed to against against Italy um you know, I actually don't think that we could say that many players had an off game. I think England's two midfielders, Rice and Phillips, were on it. Rice had one of his better performances, but um I thought yeah. Rice was outstanding. Again, he just ran out of steam, didn't he? Yeah, and he put so he put so much in. I mean, I saw when he was substituted, and he, he put his uh, he put his his face under his t shirt, and I think he, he, he swore at himself or, or had a good shout at himself. I think that was as, as if to say, you know, oh. If only I could have done more, but I don't think he could have done really. I think he was, you know, he was brilliant. Um, maybe... I would say I
2: thought I thought Saka was poor when he'd come on. His
0: touch was letting him down and stuff. Yeah. And I know
2: people were saying, I heard some people say, well, he wasn't played right. Or, you know, they weren't giving him the ball, but he was on hitting passes or it was bouncing off him. It just, uh, so when I, that's why I was a bit, I was worried when I saw him going up to take the penalty. Because he just, he'd been excellent
0: this tournament, but he just had one last, on Sunday, didn't he? yeah he did uh, and I, I, I think it was a similar story against Denmark. I think maybe nerves have caught up with him and you wouldn't blame him for that he's nineteen i mean um frankly England should have good enough players between the ages of twenty one and sort of thirty two in in this in this country that they don't need to bring a nineteen year old to a tournament that's if I'm being brutally honest that's the that's the truth of it but you know southgate trusts youth and saka deserves to be at this tournament and and has been one of the breakout stars of it i'd say you know he's 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 close to being in, i'd say he's the young player of this tournament certainly from an england perspective but yeah he, he did look nervous and, and his touch wasn't quite right um and would
2: southgate be a loser for this particular game because of his tactics i mean he left it so late to bring on rashford and sancho and well i think it was, it was that- a weird formation at the end of the game wasn't it rashford is at right back
0: No, I think I I don't think that's I don't think I don't think I agree with that. I think he was bringing them on simply for penalties, and he had he therefore had to do it late because if you if you if you do it too early and you keep Rashford at right back, then you do lose the game in extra time and you don't get to penalties, and then you are wondering what might have been. Maybe if we'd kept the players on, we'd have taken it to penalties and and won on the shootout without the need for Rashford and Sancho. So no, I, I don't agree with that. I think. Um, you know maybe some people will say it's. it's I dangerous. think
2: people just thought that because it could have affected the game going forward a bit earlier you know Rashford and Sancho if you'd have put them on, maybe on the wings and and things like that really and the fact he took off Kyle Walker who's an experienced player you know he could have he could have taken a penalty I know Jordan Henson was taken off but we've spoken about his penalty taking abilities in the past so I can kind of understand that as well and uh, yeah so I think that that, that, that was more the frustration around it for, for people in general. Um, I know, moving on, I know you were in Gareth Southgate's press conference, which he's done today, the Monday, the day after the final. I think that's a question, but you listened in and from what I can
0: gather from people, he was, he was really down, wasn't he? He did look down. I've got a quote here, which he said, he said, it feels like my stomach's been ripped out this morning. Now, I think he was generally pretty fair in the press conference. I think um when he was asked slightly more brutal questions he was willing to accept some of the blame and uh and you know response responsibility uh, and some of it he sent back and said well when we look at this with a more logical mind and, and less emotionally I don't necessarily think that will be fair but um yeah he he was he was maybe a bit down when he was you know, people were saying, oh, can, "Hi Gareth, can you hear me?" And he was he was saying, sort of, "Yes." Where in the past he he maybe be a bit more upbeat. But what do you expect? The man's probably had about five or six hours sleep, and he's just gone out of a, a major tournament final, and and he's actually the only England manager ever to lose a major tournament final. Now, so he won't be he won't be pleased. But what he's done to get his team there, and what his team have done to rise to the occasion, you know, I. I really, really hope that, that, that that's how history history will remember this team because I don't think penalties are, are, are luck, really. But I also don't think they're entirely skill. Nerves come into it. And the fact that England got one Italian glove away from from winning a tournament, a major tournament, is is a, a, a huge reason to be proud. Um, and, Absolutely. And I think the press coverage of it today, I mean, we've been critical of maybe...
2: Media too critical of England, but it, I I found it very sort of fair and reflective. You know, obviously he said, "Look, it didn't quite happen. Maybe he got his tactic wrong." But on the whole, what he's done in this tournament and over the last two years deserves a lot of credit.
0: Yeah, and he'll go again in 2022 in Qatar, where he'll hope that England can can get over the line and, and maybe maybe end the end the years of hurt well, of the World Cup. But
2: well, Dom, you know what happened to the last Euro um, finalist who lost, didn't you?
0: Yeah, well, quite absolutely. They, they won the World Cup, didn't they, France? But did. Um, we'll have to see. I don't think England will go into the World Cup as favourites. I, I, I think they'll maybe go in as fifth or sixth favourites, and and then it's your job to, you know, to to make it to make it your time. But it, there there is a feeling, however young this England team are, and however well they've done, and however much they've united the nation, I think there is a feeling this morning that perhaps this is a real missed opportunity england had had 6 out of 7 games at home at, and not just in england but at wembley for every single one when are they next going to have a striker as as multifaceted and world class as harry kane when are they next going to have a a center back partnership quite as as impressive as stones and maguire when are they next going to have a dribbler as as world class as sterling a manager as as calm and as as good in so many aspects of his job as Southgate, some will say, well, 2022 is when they'll next have that because they're so young. But, you know, the home advantage is a big thing. And the fact that so many teams that were tipped to win the tournament mm. went out early is a big thing. And the fact that England... Do you think,
2: now- though the home advantage maybe worked against him as he got late into the competition? I mean, you look at Rome, it was like, because the pressure, it almost didn't feel like the pressure was there when you went to Rome, which we said, could be on because they're not playing at Wembley. But do you think with the whole hype around the last season, the emotion after winning against Denmark, celebrations, do you think that emotion carried over? Do you think it might have been better if it had been in somewhere like, I don't know, Copenhagen, for example, and it's both teams in a neutral environment?
0: Well, England, for a few years in the Roy Hodgson era, Looked like they got their best results when they played away from Wembley, and I think that's been true under some managers and in some for some iterations of England. And I think playing um, playing with the with the confidence of the crowd cheering them on has has been positive and beneficial to other Englands. I think when you've played what one thousand and thirty games, however many games England have played, something like that, one thousand and twenty five games in your history you're bound to have some where the crowd helps you and you're bound to have some where the crowd hinders you. That's just the law of averages. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe it did sort of uh, feel like a moment where England could just just go and perform and, and not worry about the pressure when they went to Rome. But equally, e- equally I, I could imagine England having put four, uh, you know, putting four past Ukraine in front of the Wembley crowd because that Ukraine looked utterly shattered emotionally and physically. So yeah, maybe there's something in that, but um, it's one of those things that, that we'll never know. I, I think this is a missed opportunity for England, but I think the nation is, is very proud of them. And uh, rightly, I think that, that there's, there's more a feeling of, of, of pride and, and, and pleasure that England are back into the to sort of the, the big time rather than disappointment and looking at what might have been. Everyone's aware of what might have been, but I don't think that's the overriding feeling. Before we look ahead to the Qatar World Cup, I know you've got another guest for us. delighted to say that I'm joined now by our final guest of the year. We will be back, of course, uh, next year for the World Cup in Qatar, but we're joined now by Rob Harris, global sports correspondent for Associated Press. Rob, thank you very much for joining me.
3: Great to join you, Dom.
0: So I think we, we should probably start... Um, with the horrible racist abuse that the three England players who missed the penalties have received since, since the game. It's uh, we, we've heard a lot about um, unconditional love for this, this young England team, but clearly that didn't play out, did it? It's uh horrible scenes.
3: Yeah. I mean, it was just grimly familiar. And there was almost that sort of fearful expectation after they missed the penalties, you looked on Twitter about what, what might be looming for them. And when you sort of took a glance at Twitter or Instagram and it was just familiar with things like the monkey emojis and other comments directed at uh, Rashford, Sancho and Saka. And uh, what's striking is there isn't the instant condemnation from Instagram, from Twitter. You have to sort of seek it out and you have to sort of try to sort of drill down to sort of see what they're actually doing the following morning. And it's the same sort of functionary statements. They don't put a face on television, for instance, to show to some compassion and talking about it. It's sort of nameless statements. And we go through the same process so often and we get to sort of get clearly the response that the football bodies want because they keep on saying it. Yes, the government are planning for legislation, but clearly the uh, social media networks are hoping that the issue just goes away and they haven't been more on the front foot in sort of talking what they do, talking what they want to do, talking what they could do to try to eradicate it. So, so we're not uh, going through this. I mean, it was interesting Gareth Southgate was saying at the, uh, day after debrief that he thought based on the analytics that some of this abuse does come abroad from abroad and are they actually england fans or not yes a lot of these accounts you look at are very low followings have they been created just to send abuse that out of names that out of faces but of course some do and the fact is this is what players will be looking at if they want to go on their instagram or their twitter feeds and uh, it's something they should not have to face in any way
0: no, certainly not. I think that we've heard a lot today, especially about how courageous they were for even stepping up. I mean, all three of England's players who missed last night were incredibly young. I think the oldest was Marcus Rashford, and he's just 23. He's a vastly experienced footballer, but he's still so young. And and frankly, um, you, you, you don't expect that for, for anyone. You, you don't want to wish that on anyone. But least of all, for young, effectively, young men who who have who are only at this this tournament because of their incredible quality and to be ditched like that by fans just because it, it didn't go their way is uh, is incredibly fickle and, and 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 just disgusting to see also we we have to talk about the fans who who broke their way into the stadium who didn't have a ticket, which is, you know, in hindsight, very predictable. But um, I don't think the policing and, and the staff did enough, did they, to, to stop that kind of thing happening? And you could see around Wembley that it was it was getting quite nasty quite early on in the day, you know, many, many hours before the game even kicked off.
3: Yeah, a few surprising aspects. Of this one is the eight o'clock kickoff. Could it not be earlier? Yes, like the Champions League final is also eight o'clock or um, ninth century European time if it's... Uh, in certain countries, and it allowed for that all-day drinking. It also meant there was a lot of difficulties with fans getting back after the game. Even if, there'd been, if there hadn't been extra time penalties, it would still have been challenging that many fans leaving that late. I mean, there aren't Premier League games held on Sunday nights for a reason and why there is an outcry. So it could easily have been, say, a six o'clock kickoff without actually clashing with something like the Wimbledon uh, men's final, which would obviously be a competing television event in some markets. And also, what was striking from really the first game in the group stage when I was there for the Croatia match was just how different I feel Wembley felt to other tournaments I've been to. I mean, it felt perhaps quite um, soothing in a way. That, that there was low fences, there wasn't sort of this um, high multiple barriers of fences around the stadium. And it felt like a sort of um, quite a a tranquil environment. that didn't feel like a heavy, overbearing security presence. But now I think you realise why you often need that quite intimidating large fences to try to act as a big deterrent. And it just didn't work having these sort of flimsy lines of stewards, small, low fences, because it presented an opportunity and it's very hard to sort of second guess why fans did try to charge in perhaps it's because they knew there was more than 20,000 empty seats that they thought there was a chance that they could actually get in and easily sit in them because the opportunity was there and once you've had a sort of emboldened mob drinking all day it can lead to that but I mean it created sort of disgusting scenes and obviously there was some violence in it as well more than just sort of trying to get in you saw her in the stadium there were fans who clearly had their seats already occupied and also questions over some of the ticketing processes that will obviously lead to a review. I mean, one of the the issues is is, is around Wembley. Wembley is a very different stadium from when it first opened in 2007. The fact is, because the FA don't own the whole site, they never bought it all at the start of the century, it meant it was developed on by the uh, property firm. So all those apartment blocks that now mean you can barely see the Wembley Arch are right up close to the entrances where actually previously there were large car parks and an ultimate sort of barrier around the stadium. You've now got uh, fans getting really, really close to the entrances in a way you just haven't had in, in in recent World Cups and Euros that I've been to. And also the fans have been gathering in big numbers between the stadium and Wembley Arena and it, you know, obviously looks great in the sense of look at all this fandom, fans are back after the pandemic and all the uh, um, inability to to get together in groups. Well, part of the fact that gathering is still against the coronavirus restrictions. The police did nothing to try to disperse it over the weeks. I mean, they saw it starting to gather at the first game, just think, oh, maybe this is a bit of a problem or it could be a, a, a flashpoint and it's not a sort of scene that you want to do. You don't want these fans gathering all together, particularly drinking all day, but there was no attempt to sort of fence off areas or to, to naturally prevent them from getting that close. So actually, Wembley was not a point where they gathered in numbers. Yes, we saw each, uh, Leicester Square well away from the ground, which, you know, obviously created some issues. But, I mean, if what it created was a potential scene for fans to go to, even if they didn't have tickets, an inviting sort of location. And then obviously what we saw was the scenes of them uh, acting violently to try to get into the stadium. And then, you know, initially um, the FA was saying that uh, no fans had got in our tickets and eventually they did say that. And obviously now there'll be the the investigations, UEFA, uh, the FA, in terms of who was responsible. Um, but actually, ultimately, around the policing and stewarding, it will be the local authorities because they have to give the safety, safety certificate, the policing is determined by the, by the Met and the London Mail will be involved as well. So probably multiple... Borders as well, and sort of, uh, you know, perhaps we've just had a um, a sense across English football of sort of reassurance uh, that uh, fans don't do things like charge stadiums. Obviously, the incident at Old Trafford a couple of months ago is very different when the United fans were trying to get in uh, in, in a formal protest.
0: Yeah, absolutely, uh, w- Rob. We were both in the press conference today where Gareth Southgate said that defeat felt to him as though he, you know, he'd had his stomach ripped out. <laughs> Which was quite quite dramatic, but you can understand given what he's put put into this tournament, and indeed what his what his team have, have put into it. Um, I think it's it's um, called into question the uh, <laughs> the objectivity of a few journalists this morning who who are ultimately England fans as well. You know they're paid to be impartial, but it, it, it can feel you can feel like a fan on the morning after England have gone out, especially from a major final. And of course, England supporters will be will be so upset that they that they couldn't get over the line uh, against Italy. However, that's, that's no excuse for the violence that we saw from England fans. It uh, seems that we've seen all too familiarly in, in places like um, Shizuoka and Chantilly. And ultimately, that is not going to help England's cause as they look to bid to host further tournaments, is it? Like the World Cup and the European Championships, that's not going to help England's cause.
3: Yeah, it's very damaging in terms of the oppression of English football. The World Cup bid is a planned joint one with Scotland, Wales and uh... An Ireland too. Obviously the games at Hamden seem to go off uh, peacefully. You know, mm. a lot of Scottish fans going there, so it's not just an England bid. And, you know, there will be some um, need to sort of repair the damage of this, of the image of English football fans, of the ability to police events. And actually, more pressingly, there's a Champions League final that's due um, at some point in the next few years or the order's been all disrupted by the need to play the last two in uh, Portugal. But uh, there is a a Champions League final due at Wembley. And that will be the next real test of uh, the um, capabilities of Wembley. uh, And yeah, the 2030 World Cup bid is something looming large. It does bring back all those uh, bad impressions of uh, English football. And, um, you know, when we look at the actual result itself, clearly Gareth Southgate was crestfallen. He's worked so hard. With this team, has worked so hard to try to transform perceptions of the England team to give a different sort of platform for players that didn't exist in the past, and they, allowing them to sort of campaign and to use their um, platforms to to, to um, push for changes in society as well. And I think it's probably quite an unusual feeling for. Us. I think very often obviously when England have gone out of every tournament since 1966, every tournament England played since 1966, they've gone home early. So there's that sense when we've had a penalty shootout that suddenly at that moment, the tournament's going to continue without England.
1: Mm. What was
3: a different sensation for me inside Wembley was suddenly at the shootout that the whole tournament was over anyway. There wasn't that sense of missing out the rest of the party. So it was slightly strange sort of Mm. feeling that everyone's going home as well, not take not detracting the way that actually the huge disappointment of uh, not Winning something. But um the, the other thing that came to sharp focus in sort of the last couple of weeks, while well, particularly when we're playing Germany and we're looking at that rivalry and less or so against Italy, was just this sense. And we'll remind him last night with Jeff Hurst there about how we as a nation are really sort of clinging to the 11 players from 66 and the rest of the squad as the focal points of our footballing history and everything revolves around 66 that doesn't happen in Italy and Germany. They've got so many world titles, yeah. European titles as well, that it's why it means so much to us when we, when we miss out, because we still only have that one reference point of 66 of actually uh, winning something. You know, the one encouraging thing is, and we had all this talk very often in the 2000s that actually it's all built into the next tournament, it's all built into the next tournament, but actually then... It wouldn't be because um, it was always sort of for the next time. I think it's different now because the semi-finals in 2018, jumping up a level to reach a final in 2021 as well. And probably with out as many changes to the squad, you'd think from 2018 by the time we're sort of getting to um, Qatar next year for the World Cup, which is what, only uh, 14 months or so away if you think of... uh, you know, will Jordan Henderson be there? Will Kyle Walker be there? But you know, we've seen sort of many right-back options, and also we've seen many players proving uh, us wrong as well by sort of coming back when they seem to be written off, like a player like Kyle Walker, perhaps like Luke Shaw as well. So things can change, but it allows a sort of quick period to sort of turn things back around and to build on this as well uh, in the footballing sense.
0: I think the footballing neutral will say that justice was done over the course of the tournament because it, Italy have been the best side and they won the tournament and England have probably been the second best side and, and they ended up runners up. It, England pushed Italy all the way to a penalty shootout but it was the lowest possession um of in a football match that that England have had since uh, Southgate's fourth game in charge which was a, a Wembley draw against Spain in 2016. Um less than 40% possession it, I think there's still a feeling, isn't there, that that, that it, while England were, were very pragmatic and practical in this tournament, uh, nullifying the threats that other teams posed, perhaps England don't have that that kind of PLO-style midfielder that that you, you maybe need in international football. In club football, we've seen teams like uh, Liverpool and Tottenham Hotspur have great, especially in England, have have great success playing counter-attacking football without less of a, you know, s- such a, an emphasis on midfield. But in international football, it's a different ball game, isn't it? And actually having having possession of the ball and having control of matches can be much, much more beneficial to your hopes of winning.
3: Yeah, I meant there were points in the second half of England struggling to get hold of the ball at all. And uh, I think what's probably the most sort of uh, striking thing yesterday was that um, the failure to build on the platform of the early goal? It, it was the perfect launch board. I mean, the Italians were absolutely sort of rattled. It was the chance to try to uh, really sort of uh, build, you know, build a sort of healthy lead. It was sort of was thinking back to almost the Tottenham game at uh, Manchester United in uh, last October, although. Uh, United ever sending off the fact actually to score early, you, just, you know, get a pretty convincing win, and uh, that obviously just didn't happen. And uh, gradually the game was going on. You're thinking, oh, this this could get away from England pretty easily. The truth glee- this that they're actually dominating in the first half and 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 really unsettling Italy and allowing them to regain a foothold to, to sort of regain their um, their confidence. And whether or not England were just not assertive enough, or just not bold enough, and is there that certain timidity and is there that caution from Gareth Southgate, which has worked through the uh, tournament so far in the sense of those slender wins carrying England through and even when um, getting the 2-0 win over Germany, obviously the first goal, Sterling, only came with 15 minutes to go. And um, is is Gareth Southgate making the changes soon enough? we would had those sorts of questions throughout the tournament but then when pulling off the result obviously seeming vindicated but you know whether we should have seen Grealish coming in soon uh trying to win the game in 90 minutes there was that sense almost playing for penalties almost at one point particularly of course those um substitutions which were designed for penalties and I was sort of watching anxiously as uh Marcus Rashford obviously deployed it right back to those final moments just hoping that uh, it would go okay which obviously did he made quite an important um intervention tackling to clear the ball um, but yeah it's um, it's the many questions I think something I wrote last night was the fact that actually they you know, were probably analysing uh, the tactics of the game for many decades to come if there isn't a, a title sooner then the other thing that came to mind was of course not many people now think about the 2016 Euros final France losing to Portugal because of course it was quickly overtaken by uh, the scenes in Moscow when uh, of course they won the World Cup
0: well, England, England's destiny might not be to win the World Cup, but they'll hope that they can, you know, t- turn on the style in Russia, in Qatar rather and, uh, and go one step further. But is there perhaps a, a feeling that this was a, a real missed opportunity? I think the sense in England, looking at the, the newspapers and, and the articles written and, and hearing the fans before the final was that actually England should be proud of, of the fact that they've made the final irrespective of the result and, and that they're... That, that they're, they're reaching the final was frankly enough to make the nation proud of them. but actually as you, as you look back on it now, I think there is a sense of a missed opportunity given that it was an e- it was an easier side of the draw that they ended on. It was um, it was home advantage for six of the seven games and a lot of the big dogs went out earlier on in the tournament. It, I think, I think we'd, it's fair to say that, that maybe it's a missed opportunity when you look back in hindsight.
3: Well, exactly. I mean, so many of the uh, conditions were well set up for England. They were able to stay at St George's Park for the most of the tournament, familiar territory there and at Wembley. Having such home advantage as well with the, with the pandemic preventing most fans being able to come into the country as well. So absolutely being able to dominate Wembley in terms of the, the England um, crowd. And also the fact is not much went wrong. There weren't sort of players getting suspended. There weren't uh, through accumulation of yellow cards or anything. There weren't significant injuries that disrupted Gareth Southgate's plan. So he could largely choose from a a full squad. And of course, having the extra players as well to choose 26 men helped as well in these uh, conditions. Uh, So probably a sense to look at things with a tinge of regret, but actually, just reaching the final, I think managed to captivate the nation, really helping to continue that bond that was forged with the fans and the players in um, Russia. And indeed, between the England team and the media, I'm good at saying that, some past tournaments, it's been pretty heated, there's been friction between the media and the players, there's been a sort of reluctance of the players to engage, a tense atmosphere, which obviously, you know, for instance, when I was there in Brazil in uh, 2014, and obviously England going out after a week or so after two games didn't help anyway. But there is a willingness of the FA, particularly to try to assist the media with access to try to give a spread of players for us to talk to and to allow the players to express themselves with a freedom. I mean, even in some more potentially controversial things that players or Gareth Southgate might have said with us there wasn't sort of an FA press officer jumping in and demanding something wasn't used or trying to sort of stop in a way that did happen in the past to try to cut out questions. And, uh, you know, it, it meant they could speak freely, unhindered by uh, any sort of force of restrictions, which, uh, you know, certainly was welcoming. Uh, and the fact as well, it has to be said that England were one of the, Few, maybe the only team to actually set up a system during the pandemic where media some of us were able to actually go into the St George's Park camp whereas most teams just did everything on Zoom and it makes a difference being able to see players face to face, talk to them in a more relaxed way and to get a different sort of depth of conversation and the FA didn't have to do that, they could have just hidden behind the, uh, the need to be ultra cautious, particularly even after obviously the um, Billy Gilmore positive which led to um, Ben Chilwell and Mason out to isolate, they still did continue allowing us into St. George's then with testing and various distancing as well so, uh, you know, that's a credit to them and it probably helps in terms of the uh, you know, goodwill when it's legitimate, obviously still challenging questions when, when necessary about uh, any aspects of the team.
0: Yeah, quite right. I think generally there will be a, a sense that, it, as you say yourself, the conditions were perhaps set up nicely for England and that while they got to the final and took the best team of the tournament to the penalty shootout, ultimately they maybe came up a, a little bit short and, and didn't quite use the advantages in the final game especially, tactically um, from from Steve Holland and Southgate as, as well as they maybe could have done. But I think it's a, it certainly goes down as a positive tournament. It's England's best statistically since 1966. And the World Cup being only 16 months away now in Qatar means that Perhaps this is a springboard from which England can uh, can grow again. You know, semi-finals in Russia, a final in uh, in twenty twenty one. I don't want to tempt fate, but um, England will will fancy their chances uh, in Qatar. But but Rob, it's been great uh, hearing from you. I, I've really enjoyed your analysis, and uh, thank you for being the uh, final guest of the series.
3: Great to great chatting, and uh, shame it couldn't be celebrating a success, but we move on. <laughs>
0: We move on. Here's to the next time.
3: Thank yeah.
2: you. So that was Rob Harris. And uh, many thanks to all the guests who've come on the pod over the last month or so. And Dom, obviously, 16 months away. We're going to have another tournament. We're going to be doing all this again, all this stress. Um, Qatar, now the difference with this World Cup is that it won't be at the end of a long, hard season. It'll kind of almost just be a couple months in, which may well work to England's advantage because that's an excuse that's been used in the past Certainly, they can't use the excuse this time going forward. The only sort of excuse that we can have will be the heat in Qatar. I mean, they're playing it in the winter when it's supposed to be less warm, but it's still going to be close to 30 degrees, even for an evening game. So,
0: we've got a lot of hope. Do you th- do you see lots of changes to the squad as well going forward? I've always struggled to understand why football writers who have been there and done it, um, uh, and football pundits indeed, um, talk about young players as as England definites for the next decade. I, I don't think you should ever, ever use those words because that's not how history works. I bet someone like Deli Alley has been called that. And look where he is, look how far he is from an England squad right now. And and well, Luke Shaw was 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 miles away, wasn't he, from the squad about 18 months ago. I think somebody mentioned it if the tournament had taken place last year, Luke Shaw wouldn't even be in the squad, would he? No, and he'd been one of England's best players. Um Absolutely. So I, I think it's dangerous to think that these players will, that all of them will retain the form that they're in and, and necessarily improve on the trajectory that, in in scare quotes, the average player manages to find. Um, but but there, there are certainly positive signs. I don't think there are any players that will definitely be too old in, in, in a year and a half time. Um, you know, Trippier and and Henderson and Walker are the oldest players in this squad, but but they don't look like they're certainly not someone like Carl Walker. It doesn't look like he's he's slowing down at all. Trippier doesn't look like he wants to win and and, and works for the team any less. Henderson doesn't look like he's slowing down with his, his passing and his control and his, his sort of command of, of, of his players on the pitch. So I think the, the signs of, of, of progress are, are there. Bellingham will be 19 at the next World Cup. That's a that's a brilliant thought. Um, Saka will be, what would it be? He'll, Saka will be 20, 21. So, yeah, the, the the signs are there. Some of those players won't make the squad. They'll have a, a bad tournament or get an injury or something and other players will come in. But if you look at the England youth system, it can only make you pleased. And, and yeah, it's vindication for the many millions of pounds that went into St George's Park and and trying to... To form an England youth setup and, and a youth system that can can flourish into the future. England have made a semi-final in, in Russia and a World Cup um, and a European Championships final here. And, and, and that's largely to do with the, the quality of players coming through in this country. England have, have come up short here, but it's a very young England and they'll they'll go again. And Southgate will will lead them again. Thank you very much for joining us for England Unmasked throughout the Euros, which we and I hope you have thoroughly enjoyed being part of and uh, watching this this lovely England team with all their stars and their quality and their personality make the European Championships final and I'd like to send uh, and I think Luke would as well a a massive thank you to the the guests that we've had on across the uh, the series Art De Roche from The Athletic, Lucas Ball from London football scene, John Murray from BBC Radio 5 Live, Matthew Nash from the Metro, Henry Winter of The Times, Faker others from Talk Sport, John Cross from the Mirror, John Nicholson from Football 365, Oliver Holt from the Mail on Sunday, Paul Haywood, the highly esteemed freelancer, and Rob Harris from Associated Press. Thank you very much to them all. Uh, th- thanks very much to them all for their wonderful contributions and their fantastic insight throughout the tournament. We'll be back for the World Cup, which is uh, only 16 months away now. So for a final time, from me, Dom Smith, it's goodbye.
2: And it's goodbye. And thank you from me, Luke Edwards.